So, um, everyone ready? Looking ready? Ready as we'll ever be. Haven't got their water. That was the other thing. Who wants some water? Uh, glug, 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 glug. Okay then, let's go. So hello, welcome again to the studio after an episode where we've been wandering the streets of Copenhagen. We're back in London in the great studio and a fantastic series of guests. So let's just kick off and see who's around the table. I'm Ian, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. Vera from Salesforce. Gail Schumann from Harvey Nichols. Jennifer Roebuck from Feel Unique. Robin Phillips from Watchshop. Robin, you're sounding very sultry. Uh, is this your radio voice or have you been shouting, screaming or being ill or something? I've been eating gravel this morning along with the granola, I think. Gravel and granola, so uh, say no more. But listen, um, we're going to let you rest your voice for a second. So we'll kick off with Jennifer and why not. Jennifer, welcome. Tell us, first of all, about your role and what you're up to. So I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Feel Unique and I am managing everything from marketing through to merchandising in a pure play beauty retailer. So what am I up to? I'm fighting the beauty battle. <laughs> what is the beauty battle? That sounds very, very noble and a little bit scary. Yeah, maybe. So we're a global business and some markets are more mature than others. In the UK, it's a very competitive space, which means we need to be on top of our game from everything to do with brand assortment all the way through to customer experience and brand positioning, PR. So we're, you know, managing a high level of innovation on a on a regular basis. So what is that different experience you give your consumers? So at the moment, the differentiation really lies in the content that we produce and making sure that we have a lot of knowledge and expertise that we're putting in front of the customer to help them make decisions on products which are often difficult to make decisions on, right? So complexion, skincare, things of that nature. Um, and equally, we're trying to educate them about a lot of the new brands that are launching in the market. So one of the opportunities that we've had um, is to carve out a niche within the future beauty, which is a partnership we have with a business called Indie Beauty Expo, and they help us source the most um, compelling emerging brands from around the world, and we present them in sort of a shop within a shop. Mm. And what are the requirements then for those brands to be presented? So, you know, I think people often forget just how professional beauty has to be now. So it has to be hypoallergenic, fully traced. You have to have enough to sell globally, but not so much, you have too much stock. So what are the entry criteria for these new brands to get into that program? So Indie Beauty Expo actually help us review each brand. So they specialize in sourcing and looking at the potential popularity of the brand on social media, for example. That's one sort of signal that we look mm. at all the way through to emerging sales. Some brands will start off in a very small indie basis on Amazon and then look for distribution partners after that mm. point. I hear there's a new uh, startup uh, by someone called Lady Gaga that uh, may get some publicity soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard that as well. House of Beauty. Yeah. But those brands have to have EU certification. So first and foremost, in order for us to retail them across the EU, they mm. need to uh, obtain that certification themselves. Then we work with them to curate the assortment, which you can imagine is rather large, and then drill it down to a small assortment that we think represent the trends that are most important to the consumer 
on a month by month basis. So I've been speaking or mentioning con your consumer a little bit now. Who is your consumer? Our consumer is, as much as I hate to say, millennials. Why do you hate to say that? They are I think it's a, it's a broad segment. So everybody just likes to say, we like millennials or we're going after millennials. And it's like, great. So everyone who's 18 to 34. Really, and wants to wear makeup. Yeah. I mean, they could be split into three segments. I'd say we have a very strong representation across the two main millennial segments. So both the younger end and the older end of the spectrum. But that still is a challenging task because the range of products that that group purchase can be anything from very traditional hair care brands all the way through to the future beauty brands that we represent. So we have to make sure that we have a very broad assortment. Mm. And you're rejecting the idea of a general customer. So I'm going to make it harder by trying to generalize again. <laughs> But when you look at your customers, what is the buying behavior? Are you having people who are passionate about one particular potion or color or people who are brand shopping or do people go through a life cycle of moving up and down brands? If I'd been a long-standing customer, what's my typical progression within your offering? I would say you probably start off very loyal to one brand and usually it's a traditional brand or it's a very PR-driven brand. So you could take Charlotte Tilbury as a perfect example where there are loyalists who buy Charlotte Tilbury and buy two, three, four, five, six SKUs at a time because they buy into the range. And it's a very intelligently merchandised range, which is, you know, why one of the reasons it's so successful. But you also have your replenishment customer who just wants shampoo and conditioner, right, on a eight-week rolling basis, and they reorder from us. And so the, the kind of general, very keen customer is a mixture of those two things, right? Mm. They come to us for replenishment. We make that very easy for them. We have a next day service, which is effectively the equivalent of Amazon Prime, but for beauty. And equally, we have a lot of the emerging brands that our competitors don't have. And so we're able to give them the opportunity to purchase those brands or experiment with those brands as well. Mm. You did that thing where you said something very lucidly and I nodded and then realized I didn't actually understand what you'd said, which was you, you mentioned uh, the intelligently merchandised. Uh, it sounds like a great phrase. What does that mean from the perspective of a makeup brand? So we try and break things down into mini stories if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So it's not that complicated. Just picture a carousel of products, but with a story beneath each product. So the customer has some context around why you'd buy the product, what's its backstory, what is good about the product. An ingredient or something be that you need to keep an eye out for as ingredients are now becoming more and more popular within beauty. Brands like The Ordinary and Inky List, you know, people are looking for caffeine cream specifically for under eye care, right? So it is right. getting very, very micro. So the knowledge and information that we need to have and pass on digitally is becoming greater and greater in terms mm. of what the customer expects. I suppose having that knowledge on your site and social will actually pick up people who already know what they want and are searching for it as much as sort of cross-educating people who are already on your list. Yeah, I think it does both. Mm. Yeah. Now, last year, we had the guys from Revolution Beauty on, which was eye-opening. And uh, we've recently done our sector analyst report on beauty and cosmetics. So reading, reading, reading. And there's been a lot of innovation in the last four or five years with startups or your brands, the social genesis. But I was surprised at how old you were or how early 
you were to the market as a sort of digital disruptor. So you you were around last decade before a lot of the people we now think of as innovators, you know, whether it's Revolution, Glossier, Drunk Elephant, all of those. What do you think that early start has given you? Is it an advantage? You know, how does that help you fit in to this landscape? So I think, I mean, first of all, I wasn't around at that point. So the founders uh, did a brilliant job of carving out a space, which at the time was really difficult to get access to. So Traditionally, all of the sought-after beauty brands were only retailed in bricks and mortar, and you couldn't obtain permission to sell digitally unless you had a bricks and mortar presence and mm -hmm. a pharmacist. And there are some brands who still operate under those principles. So we actually do have stores for that reason. Not only for that reason, but that helps us. So yeah. Chanel, we work with, and Chanel have very strict EU retailing criteria, and we are one of the few pure play businesses to retail Chanel. I think in the early days, the benefits that Feel Unique had and still have are access to those luxury brands and traditional brands who want the stability and the consistency and the longevity of a retailer. What competitive advantages has it given us in the long term? Well, I mean, for one, we have a, a pure bespoke platform that we've built and innovated on top of for years. So our speed to market is fast in terms of adding new payment methods you know, adjusting some of the kind of more granular e-commerce mm -hmm. pieces that might seem a bit administrative, but actually adding Apple Pay is a really big deal. And we were able to do it very, very fast. And others who might be waiting for roadmaps on shared platforms or whatnot may not have those benefits. Reputation, right? Early scale. So in the UK, we're still one of the biggest online beauty retailers, but equally we've, man we've been able to scale in China much faster than our competition. And we have mm. we now have a team on the ground in China, a warehouse in China, and a full, you know, WeChat marketplace solution, which we were able to build up rather quickly ahead of our competition. So I think it's just given us knowledge, right? Always kind of one step ahead of where yeah. our competitors are. Good. Yeah. Uh, let's track back to the brands. There's something that, you know, Robin, we've spoken about, which is in the watch world, your group is dealing with some of the biggest, most precious brand-focused brands in the world. So I can remember, you know, it has a phrase of some of the challenges of trying to persuade beauty brands to let us put them on their site and things like, you know, if you search a red lipstick, you can't return us next to another brand. We need our own mini micro sub-site for the returns, etc. So what challenges are there in dealing with brands with such a heritage and so many demands? I don't. So a lot of those challenges have gone away. I mean, I think they've accepted that the consumer scrolls up and down on Instagram and they're going to see, you know, adjacencies that make them feel uncomfortable. But it, the consumer makes the choice. So with our platform, it's this, exactly the same. You know, consumers can search, browse, compare, and they're going to make those decisions and, and, and view those brands in the way that they, they want to, right? They're in control. So all of the, the protectionism, I think, around the brand has relaxed, apart from some of the, the more luxury end of the spectrum. But I think that's to be expected. But I think there's been a real movement towards user-generated content, authenticity, recognizing that you can't just take an advertising campaign and plaster it all over a platform and then expect it to perform because the mm. consumer wants to see something that speaks to them. So a lot of the brands that we work with are really open and we produce content on their behalf that sits on our platform 
exclusively um, and helps us tell the story of the product that resonates with our audience as opposed to just taking their materials and assets and then just, you know, repurposing them. Mm. So you spoke about authenticity. Mm. We have storytelling. We have social. So basically all the ingredients, uh, and I don't say millennial, but the maybe millennially minded consumers value. And it's a, it's a slightly different milieu than maybe high street plus online. It, it is with the customers as they live their lives. Where do you see the broad beauty market going? So we're seeing, you've mentioned celebrities, colour is very important, you know, micro groups of people coming together. It, it seems to be like an incredibly complex area. If you were to draw an arc for the next five years, where would you see the sector developing? What are the pressures and opportunities there? So I think it's a market by market view. I think within retail, consolidation, because there are many, many, many players. There's a low barrier to entry now. And the wholesalers have become more open. So it's easier to access their goods and services and obviously retail them. Um, there's no barrier to entry for new brands anymore. You know, and the the minimum quantities to launch in a market are very small. So if you have let's say 10,000 pounds, you can start a skincare range, launch yourself on Instagram with Shopify, and then you're a brand. And that's, I think, what's creating the most disruption. And these brands are scaling through PR and, you know, founder story-led visions that create these niche followings, right, that then kind of take shape. And then ultimately, I think, dissolve a little bit over time because a new trend comes along and then somebody follows somebody else who has a new story to tell. But I think that creates a lot of disruption and you have marketplace models like Amazon also disrupting. And you know, your point about Lady Gaga, you know, there's more and more interest in beauty because it's scaling, it's thriving, whereas I think fashion has struggled of late. Mm. Um, beauty seems to be incredibly buoyant and it's it's one of those purchases that even when the economy is struggling, people still invest in beauty over fashion, right? Why do you think that? So we're wearing old clothes, uh, we're dumping fast fashion, embracing maybe fast beauty. Why is beauty so resilient? Well, you, so skincare is a necessity, right, as opposed to a choice. And and there's also a movement towards... You said that just totally with a straight face, so... It's true. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and self-care, self-love, these are all trends around looking after yourself and establishing a balance, right, and, and beauty... And wellness and mood, these are all things that go together. You know, does a lipstick make you feel confident? Does it arm you with something you didn't have without it? Is there a loyalty you have towards a, a scent? Mm. And so it's it's a motive. I think fashion can be a motive. I don't know necessarily that the brands in fashion are carving out that emotive space as well as they once did. And I'm sure they will come back with something, right, that I think regenerates the space. Whereas I think beauty is very good at that. Mm, I can feel my opinion changing uh, <laughs> just there and then. Oh, yeah. But your career has covered a really broad spectrum. So uh, you've done high street, loyalty programs, fashion. What was it that interested you about beauty when you thought, you know, was it like I'll just tick that off because it's a sector I haven't done? Or was it something you thought, this is really interesting? What, what was it that attracted you to the beauty sector? I had a little taste of the beauty sector, when a friend of mine started a beauty retailer called Cult Beauty, 
and I was an advisor to them very, very early on to the point where I, I don't claim much in terms of how successful they are. And I, I really liked the complexity, actually. And I think in fashion retail, because the evolution hasn't happened, right? So if you think about some of the fast fashion businesses, okay, they're innovative and they're fast-paced and they're producing products, you know, in a six-weekly cycle. But there isn't a lot in fashion that's sort of like color or texture or weather. It, it still feels very much like you're on this treadmill. You have a sale and then you start over. Mm. You have a sale and you start over. Beauty seems to have layers and layers and layers and layers of different trends depending on the mood, the wellness, the skincare, the complexion, the combination, the products merging, being torn apart again. It just seems to be endless. Um, and I like the fact that its roots are sort of more in an FMCG area because it's very, it's full of sort of accountability and and it's highly numerate, but also it's very creative and emotive. And so that is what appealed to me. And by accountability, you mean around the product sourcing and quality or around profit per line? I mean, both. Talking, right. Both. I think there's the quality has to be there. It's if you're retailing, you know, poor quality products people are putting on their skin. Yes. There's a health risk, right? So yeah. that's that's nice because you you whether you agree ethically with fast fashion or not, there are certain areas I personally will not shop in because I immediately think about the supply chain and mm. I think there's just no way I'm going to give this retailer um, my hard-earned money, right? In beauty, often those brands won't last very long if they come about. So I think that's nice because the consumer immediately votes with their wallet and then those brands mm. no longer exist. But also the the numerate aspect of it where. You know, you're, you're trading, it's kind of fast-paced annually, not just when you're in a sale or when you're mm. launching something new. Maybe because I'm in a multi-brand environment, I have that effect, you know, times 600, which yeah. is the number of brands we retail. Wow. So we produce 58 campaigns a month for, you know, 600 brands across the year. So it's very, very fast-paced. And I, I enjoy that. It's a little bit addictive. Great. So we've got the fast-paced, we've got the numerate, uh, logical, with the emotive. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're pretty busy anyway, but looking for the rest of the year, any cunning projects or initiatives that you're particularly excited about? So we have a new category launching next month, which I'm very excited about, which I can't reveal. Oh, what is this? <laughs> why why so tease us? This is terrible. <laughs> it just means you have to come back and tell us uh, once you've That's launched fine. it. fine. <laughs> we have a new consumer initiative, which I think is very powerful. So I'd say those are our two big launches for the rest of the year, apart from Black Five Day and Christmas, yeah. which everybody has. Yeah. Yes, well, I'm pleased you're going to be adding a little bit of wellness as well as some eye bag caffeine to uh, keep us all going. Thanks so much for that, Jen. Let's now uh, skip along the high street to uh, another icon, Harvey Nichols, known as the place to be. Restaurants, fashion, very highly curated. But rather than me butcher it, why don't we ask you, Gail, tell us a little bit about uh, Harvey Nichols and, and just how it fits into the high street offering at the moment? Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily refer to Harvey Nichols as a high street brand. You oh, know. sorry. Well, it's not necessarily <laughs> because we don't really have them on high streets. I think 
you know, the, the flagship store for Harvey Nichols is Knightsbridge on the corner of Sloan Street. And that's the brand. I think that's where the brand was kind of born. And that's what it's known most for is mm. that established address in Knightsbridge. I mean, to describe it, I think we would refer to it internally as more of a, uh, you know, a, a large boutique store rather than a small department store. Mm -hmm. I think we don't, you know, we don't have the the space and the capacity to have millions of brands and the floor space that our friends down the road in Knightsbridge have, starting mm -hmm. with an H also. Yes, yes. Um, so for us, as you said H quite rightly, exactly. <laughs> yes, the other H. The other H, yeah. <laughs> so for us, I think, like you quite rightly say, curation is one of the things we're well known for because we don't have a huge space. We have five floors with a roof terrace on the top and a food and wine hall, mm -hmm. which brings us down to four floors of fashion, one of which is been pretty much taken over completely by beauty and I've only been there for a year so I'm trying my best to justify you know and to represent the brand as well as I can given my short time with with them but I think that what they would want to be known for and what I knew them you know for before I started was a very keenly curated selection of product given the um the space that they have they're presenting what they think is the best of the best right now curation is one of those tricky words that yeah you know, trips off the tongue, we all nod. But if you're trying to explain this to somebody who hasn't been to either end of the road in Knightsbridge, and maybe they're used to a regional department store or a, mm. a medium-sized multi-category store experience, how would you explain what curation is? What does it look like qualitatively? What would I expect if I'm just landing in London and thinking, I'm going to that there curated store? What does that mean? Well, I think the joy of going to a store that is well curated is that when you walk in there, you find things that you didn't know you wanted. So they're mm. presenting a selection of carefully merchandised, carefully bought pieces that tell a story as you progress through the different floors of the store. And our intention is always that they come in and grind and they slowly come up towards fifth or they take the express lift up to the, to the fifth floor and then they come down back to ground. And through those journeys, they're presented with different selections and arrangements of products mixed in with beauty, mixed in with pop-ups that we have all the time. Um, and we, you know, we scatter um, things. We've got like a goop pop-up at the moment with Gwyneth Paltrow in our store. They mm. come and go depending on what else the, the brand is carrying as an own bot selection. So it's kind of mixing in some surprises with some more traditional pieces, trying to represent. I think what Harvey Nichols has always been good at doing is launching cult brands, fashion and beauty, mm. um, and trying to be adventurous and a little more uh, playful and... I guess, a bit more risky with their selection. And um, if we look at your regional footprint, you have stores mm. Saudi Arabia, you have yeah. stores in Asia. Would you say you have a similar shopping experience or do you have regional tweaks um, in those stores? Uh, definitely regional tweaks. I mean, we have slightly less involvement in the curation and merchandising of the stores in Hong Kong and in the Middle East. They 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 have their own... I guess, fashion directors and buying teams there that curate specifically for those local regions. Um, my focus is more on the regional stores in Britain and in Dublin and with the, with our with our London flagship, obviously. Um, there are tweaks in the assortment sometimes because we have brands that will be represented in some locations and not in others. And also because we are trying to buy and display products that are appropriate to the domiciled people that live within those neighborhoods. I think, again, our competitors, a lot of those department stores are known as tourist attractions. And whereas ours has some level of tourism to it, we see the repeat customer mm. and that kind of loyal customer feels base. feels like a local store. That is local. I mean, obviously, you know, it's an expensive local store, but if you're <laughs> trying to buy something beautiful... 
I think that you know that Harvey Nichols, or we would we would want you to feel that Harvey Nichols within your local area that you're a resident of would have a selection that's appropriate for you and that's something that you would want. Mm. Now the store is a lovely experience. To me, it feels you know light and spacious and everyone's just very nice to you and you walk around the store so i enjoy being there but how then can you develop an e-commerce channel that lives up to that rather than being just a grid of things you happen mm. to make available online how, how do you extend that experience to the digital channels well I, I mean i would start by saying that's no mean feat i think to have a brand so established in its bricks doors for such a long time i mean this is hundreds of years in the making and has been through um, many kind of large, you know, global press encounters. Was a, a huge favourite of Princess Diana. Has been the scene of many a spectacular PR campaign. Trying to recreate that level of, I guess, established loyalty and and desirability online is not easy. And I don't think we've done it yet. And I think that we, uh, with a lot of the established department stores, a lot of the established brands that started off in bricks for many years. I think we're all on the place of turning our attention to be to try to have online justify the brand name as much as it does offline. And we've made some pretty strong um, progressions in the last year and before me in the, in the years before that. But I think it's definitely it's, I think I'm not trying to replicate the in-store experience. So I think what we're trying to do is to create something that's suitable for a global customer that doesn't necessarily live next to one of our regional doors mm. right so i think it would be a disappointment to try and replicate this airy incredible experiential knightsbridge you know look and feel with with a website that's supposed to serve a global appetite with a with a very mixed mixed customer assortment i think that would be very kind of insular to that one door does the website help you in any shape or form to create an even more personalized shopping experience so one of our smaller customers, no, one of our customers, small luxury brand, they're actually using data of the search um, those customers do online to then create a personalized shopping experience when they come in store, they actually have the product slide already. Do you do something similar like that already? I mean, I think given the volume of people through the doors, we would have to have an army of people. Yeah. We Obviously, we're trying to create, the, you know, the the rather cliched omni-channel experience. The area of the business that's booming both in-store and online, funnily enough, after Jen's discussion, is beauty for us. I mean, it's every retailer's joy because the return rates are almost zero. People replenish every six to eight weeks. The, the loyalty that beauty mm. you know, harnesses is quite something else. Fashion, we are all slugging under the... The, the the difficulty with very capped buys, we're all of us are selling quite similar products or so quite similar brands. The assortment and the buy and the curation is where we we can kind of come out on top a lot of the time. But um, that's one of the problems. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but one of the things that because Harvey Nichols has you know menswear, womenswear, food and wine, beauty, homeware, you know, kidswear. <laughs> I think we, we're trying to create slightly different personalized experiences for all of those departments, but it's a department store, mm. you know, and we have a global um, online customer and a lot of those customers have never heard of our brand before, have never been anywhere near our stores before. So we're trying to present them with a accessible and uh, a kind of open presentation of the brand, Not nothing to, we're not trying to trade on the name that was established purely offline. I think that would be... Um, presumptuous. So are these people coming to your website because they've been searching for the products? A and lot, so therefore yeah. the, the, the brands you sell are attractors to 
what then people will interpret as your curation of those brands? I think it's a good mix. I think we uh, we obviously can rely on the name within our sort of British territories. We People search for us because they are fans of us and they often have shopped in, in, in store. And so they are confident with our um, product assortment. I think more so, though, we are becoming very much better at propelling ourselves forward with key brands, key search terms, being more relevant, producing very Google-friendly um, representations of the website in its different formats to make sure that we are, you know, satisfying the internet search environment to be at the top of that because, you know, everybody sells Gucci online, everybody mm. sells Saint Laurent online, everybody's searching for those brands on a daily basis, you know, and they're very desirable and th there is only so much digital marketing budget to go around. So at some point we have to yeah. look at the actual... Um, you know, knots and crosses of how the website has been constructed to make sure that we're being clever at how we present mm. the brands that we have in the most, I guess, visible way. So a combination of the storytelling uh, ability with the technical backup yeah. to make the most yeah. of it. I mean, we've, we're confident with the brand assortment we have. We have a lot of products online. Mm. We have also integrated a marketplace solution via a technical solution called Miracle to allow us to bring brands that we don't own by ourselves on board. So Burberry, for example, we brought that onto the website as a almost like a concession, a consignment. They upload product to our website by themselves and they fulfill it, dropship style, kind of far-fetched model, mm. which has been brilliant for us because we, we everybody is capped, as like I say, with, with these big fashion um, brands and the, and the depth of stock that we can actually hold ourselves as an own-bought own assortment. But to increase that range with desirable brands that we fit, we feel sit nicely alongside our own um, bot selection via marketplace model has been really interesting. And how does that fit in with the idea of competitive curation? So, again, I'm just thinking about the one and a half miles along Knightsbridge mm. where, you know, you will be saying to a luxury brand, give us the alpha range and someone will take more depth. Et so you're fighting very much to have the key pieces in a marketplace model, do you let go of that curation and give that over to the Burberries? Uh, question one. Question two is, does that then lead to you having a direct wholesale or buying relationship with Burberry? So the first thing is, who does the merchandising? And secondly, mm. commercially then, do you have this ebb and flow between arms length marketplace and direct buying? Yeah. I mean, with a Burberry is complicated because we own buy it in store and we bring it on as a a concession online but we very much have control of the curation of that product so they they put it into our system and we publish it and, and assort it and you know obviously curate it within our own bot collection as we as we wish mm. but I think it's a, a model to be adopted though because we also have limited capacity with as far as you know warehouse and fulfillment and everything else and to extend that to trusted brand partners who have a beautiful collection that we for some you know for legal reasons or for otherwise we may not be able to represent ourselves online and also it takes a lot of the risk out of it they are fulfilling it they're mm. taking the returns and we're creating a beautiful online department store with which yeah. they can you know populate their products it's interesting that uh, you know the consideration set moves from uh, google which is the consideration set of everything online to a marketplace that is just what people have chosen to sell there but you all mm. know this sort of in between thing of curated mm. so it's less than google but more than just mayhem. So I think it's quite an interesting model, that yeah. development of uh, marketplaces. And, you know, it's something we're seeing across Europe where, you know, 47, 48% of all consumer visits across Europe are now going to marketplaces mm -hmm. directly. Mm -hmm. 
18% are going direct to brands, which, you know, depending if you're an optimist or not, uh, leaves out 35% for retailers. So yeah. I think you know, opening the odds is important. But department stores, insofar as it is a sector, because it, it does mm-hmm. cover a broad range, but, you know, let's say multi-floor, multi-category retailers, there's been quite a torrid time in the middle and bottom end of the market, yet the premium end, you people at the other end of the road, <laughs> selfridges, seem to be flying in terms of mm. confidence, of distinctive uh, customer offering. Is that a correct assessment? Do you think that the the top end is pulling away? And if so, what, what's Definitely. the reason behind that? Definitely. And I think and it's interesting to see it. You know, we obviously have our pure online competitors like Matches and Etaporte, which is, a, I would put that in, as a, in a different bucket uh, well, matches is not entirely online, but primarily. So I think when you refer to the department stores, those that have been established for, you know, many decades with brick stores that have then found a way to become successful online as a secondary output of their, their strategy. I think, yes, the high-end retailers, Selfridges, ourselves, and, and some of our, our partners, well, not partners, competitors, <laughs> are doing a good job. And I, my, my feeling as to why that's working is I think there's a, there's a ingrained level of um, customer service and I very high level of attention to detail and you know just making I think that there's this sort of inbuilt VIP treatment that these luxury department stores have been built upon mm-hmm. and that we are now you know extending that through the online channel but we're not compromising that at all I mean the we're trying to replicate that very customer um, service level piece online to make sure that it is respectful and is as I guess white glove as it is in the stores and mm. I think maybe slightly sort of further along the high street where it's not quite so luxury that that level of kind of desirability to be as absolutely luxury and seamless and first class service may not have been what they've built their names upon so therefore maybe when they extended it online that didn't necessarily come through. Mm. Is We've been doing our secret shoppers over the summer mm. so by the time this airs we'll uh, have visited between three and six times, all of our top 100 no retailers in, in London. And what's fascinating, talking to the researchers, uh, one of the questions we're asking is around the quality of greeting. So when they walk into stores, they're normally, um, you know, uh, school kids, uh, sixth formers. So obviously, if they walk into a store, people think, oh, they're just mooching around, shoplifting, mm-hmm. whatever. What's been fascinating is the difference in courtesy with which they've been greeted as they've gone in. So they don't identify themselves. They're just saying, you know, how many staff can you see? Can you see the click and click? Very straightforward mm-hmm. observational stuff. But when they came back and they were chatting in the office, they definitely, you know, to a person, all raved about the experience they'd had in the more luxurious, higher-end stuff. And what's interesting is they just think that's how everyone should behave now. Mm-hmm. So that sort of sets Absolutely. the standard. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we were, I think Harvey Nichols especially is very keenly orientated towards the younger customer. I mean, one of the biggest brands that we've ever had is Fenty by um, Rihanna. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's her beauty brand, which is now a billion dollar beauty business. And we, it was exclusively with us for many years. And, um, you know, a huge chunk of our revenue was generated by 14 to 23 year olds coming in in their droves and queuing all night to come in and buy, you know, Rihanna's beauty range. So I think Harvey Nichols especially is, uh, you know, as much as we have a very, again, a wide range of that that 
customer age and demographic, we're very keen to make sure that we keep the, the younger customers happy. Otherwise, if you only satisfy that slightly older, more established customer, eventually they'll fizzle out and you've mm. failed to connect with the upcoming generations. Yeah. We also see a lot of customers coming in with their children. And I think uh, with many doors on Sloan Street and Knightsbridge, if you walk in and you have young kids, there's a slightly hostile, kind of slightly terrifying yeah. environment. The security guard is terrifying. And if you wander around and you have uh, other merchandise. Exactly. If you haven't <laughs> bought something within five minutes, you start to feel like you're being uh, watched yeah, yeah. under CCTV. And I think Harvey Nichols is very much, uh, we, you know, we partner up with, with Disney and do things and make sure that we have things that you can come in and your kids can be um, engaged with something. You can have lunch with them up there. It doesn't make matter if they want to play with the beauty stands and things. It's not a, we're trying not to have this sort of hostile and slightly severe mm. luxury environment. It's definitely not yeah. our yeah, um, our bag. As a mom of a two-year-old, that is just music <laughs> to my ears. And um, I think really kudos to you to be able to give this luxury experience for mm. everybody, mm. right? As you said, you're not focusing only on let's say the baby boomers and what do you think you're going to do to continue that? You just mentioned Rihanna. So will you focus on certain products who are targeted at a younger audience? What are other things you're doing? Well, I think obviously I'm e-commerce director. So my focus is very much focused on the online space and how we can, and that is our global flagship store. You know, the doors close in in, in the flagship stores and the regional store doors, and we continue to trade all day, all night, globally online. So I don't think it's about, you know, I think brands like Fenty come and go, you know, it's like a kind of unicorn thing. And they come don't and go. say that. Well, no, no, as in, no, I mean, as in, I don't mean hers will come and go. I think they'll come and go to a brand like us. She's our most passionate listener, so I just have to apologise to her. She won't go anywhere, but our our exclusivity will. And then, you know, if we can't just sort of sit on that and assume we're forever going to have Rihanna's um, Mm -hmm. trade coming to our doors, I think that would be slightly um, lazy. So I think my, my absolute emphasis, and since I've been there 12, 13 months now, is to make sure that the every touch point of that website on every device is as slick and accessible and enjoyable and I guess just really intuitive as possible and I think that that's not just for the younger generation that's for every generation mm. and we're not there yet you know we've we've we have had a a large scale investment into all the in, in, you know technical infrastructure of the company much of it to support online growth which is which is going very very well and so we are in a sort of catching up place where behind the scenes we're trying to make sure that we are stabilized and you know, unlike some of the, the the pure players, we've have proprietary systems and things that were built long a long time ago. You know, we're not on Shopify and we don't have some of the more agile kind of platforms beneath us. So that's slowly, you know, changing out to make sure that we have we are in a much more agile, more dynamic place so that we can react and, and add payment options and add different things as we see them in, in a very quick way. So with all this agility and, you know, very broad remit, great brand. As you look at your to-do list for the year ahead, mm. uh, what's particularly exciting that you can't wait to crack on with? Well, we're in the progress of, of building and releasing a progressive web app, which for me is a really nice piece of work that I think is great that we have a set of very engaged, very skillful developers in-house that are working on that with us. We are considering a replatform, which is anyone knows that works in e-com is, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun. (laughs) So that for me is very exciting and also something that has to be very, very carefully managed because we're integrated in so many systems. Mm. But that's more behind the scenes. You know, ahead of that, we are really trying to kind of bring our, like I said before, our customer service up to speed. We've started using a tool called Hero 
on the website, which gives our online customers direct access to the stylists on the shop floor. We call mm. them stylists, not shop assistants. It's called Ask an Expert because we have food and wine experts. We have beauty experts. We have fashion for men and women. Again, we have, you know, homeware, kids wear. So that's a really interesting tool. And we're sort of testing out how to, pre- you know, present that in the most usable and uh, functional way because we rely on stock staff, you know, store staff to be available and to be, you know, but that's really interesting because they can do live video chat. They can show the online customer how it looks in the store. They can sort of try something on for the customer on the screen. Mm. So as far as live chat, I think that's probably the most interesting version that I've seen. So that's starting to do really well for us. Yeah, my millennial team member was all excited about this tool when I said I'm going to speak to him. Yeah, it's just, great. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so. really great. And they're wonderfully open as far as, a, I guess, a technology aggregator and, a, a you know, a, a kind of third party um, supplier to us. We have very regular meetings and they involve us in their roadmap and it's a really nice partnership. I think it's one of those partnerships where you feel like everybody's out to make each other's business better, which is great. Lovely. Mm. Well, that's a busy year. I feel kind of uh, a bit understretched now with (laughs) only a few projects to go. Gail, thank you very much. Now, normally it's rude to look at one's wrist and check the time, but given our next guest, wristwatches are the topic. So, Robin, I'm not quite sure how to introduce you since we've known you, I think, the whole time internet retail has been going. So... Kurt Geiger, before that Boots, before that Waitrose, Coverstar, Keynoter. No pressure. Tell us what you're up to now. Thanks, Ian. I'll try <laughs> and live up to that. So I'm currently CEO at Watchshop.com. So it's been part of the Watchers of Switzerland group. I've uh, been there just about one year now. Mm-hmm. And I think one of your questions would probably be, why did I uh, step into that? I was about to ask you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> especially from, you know, uh, shoes um, straight to, you know, and from feet to wrists. Yeah, I think I think there are three f- key factors to it. One is the remit of the role itself. Two is the fact that business has got its own technology. So I'm spared some of those platforming integration issues that I've probably had to deal with in the past. I think the third thing is the brands are really important. It's very interesting to hear the speakers talk about being brand partners. And the key plank of our strategy for both a B2C basis but also B2B is to be a key brand partner for those mm. global brands that you're talking about and offer a point of real differentiation in the marketplace where they can confidently know that brand integrity is going to be maintained, <clears throat> that the right stories, the right images, videos, etc., the right campaign it's going to be seen by the customers that they want to buy those watches. Mm. So tell us about the watch market, because we know about the global luxury brands that your parent group sells. And then at the same time, we hear of youngsters who just don't care about watches. They just use their mobile phone or that's that. So, so where does watch selling fit into the modern world? Yeah, it's a very interesting market. So, as you say, at the top end, the luxury market driven by top brands like Rolex and Patek Philippe is a juggernaut driven by the international luxury customer. A bit further behind in terms of price range, you've got the Swiss watch businesses, so Tag, Breitling, etc. Again, showing good growth and in particular appealing to, I think, perhaps particularly with brands like Breitling looking to create product categories and niches which appeal to a younger, more sporty type of customer. And then you've got what it might be called the sort of fashion watch categories, so the core brands, 
Horst, Hilfiger, um, Michael Kors, etc., where you are seeing quite a bit of disruption. So both in terms of route to market, so marketplaces obviously have become increasingly important, but also in terms of what the smartwatch industry has done to that. And the key sort of initiatives I think we're seeing the brands adopt to tackle that is one becoming smart themselves so we're seeing a lot of alliances between the brands in terms of the technology that underpins the watch so a lot more investment into smart ranges and we've just seen that google's spent 40 million quid on the on fossil isn't it on the os that they use yes yes so what's the story there um well i think increasingly you're going to see those sort of technology and uh and watch tie-ups because Hands know that they need to be able to offer an alternative or an option to a customer that's interested in smart tech. Interestingly, in terms of the pure wearables, perhaps that's reached a bit of a peak in terms of just a piece of wearable tech in its own right. And there is increasing resonance, I think, for something which looks nice but also performs mm. a lot of the functionality you'd expect from a piece of a smart tech kit. And so in terms of the sweet spot of pricing within uh, your offer mm. just looking over the site it smells like that sort of 250 to 500 pound mm-hmm. range uh, is that right our most expensive watch is six thousand pounds but you're right that's more of the sweeter spot and our aov is actually a bit lower than um, mm. those uh, that range but for our core customer we can see that actually it is probably a millennial female they are probably buy something which they want to accessorise. If they're not doing that, they're probably buying it for a partner. Mm-hmm. So what's really important to them that it is seen to be a considered choice and that it has some credibility around the particular brand and product that they're actually choosing. So being able to tell that story themselves is an important part of it. So whilst, yes, smart and tech has made an inroad into that sector, we're still seeing that our core customer is actually that person as well who's who's looking for something which looks great as well as something which is functional. So there's a fashion and brand element as much as the rational, oh, why would I buy this rather than an Apple Watch or something? The the brands drive it and the brand stories are are really key. In terms of looking at the business, what we've done is, and I know you asked me about what we're doing this year, but effectively what we've done is to re- purpose the business as a as a branded platform. How what does that mean, a branded platform? I was just about to explain it. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping in there. That's right. My enthusiasm, uh, forgive me. That's okay. <laughs> so we looked at where our traffic comes from and we looked at who the core customer is. So we've got increasingly rich amounts of data to be able to do that. And we looked at the core customer journeys on the site in terms of what was brand-led. And as a result of that, what we're able to do for the second half of the year, particularly going to peak, is construct our marketing plan, our product plan, and how we merchandise that product and then talk about it to our customer base in terms of CRM in a more brand-specific way so that we're aligning the top of the funnel through to how they then interact with the site uh, and in terms of how we then communicate to them increasingly about that brand. So that... From a customer point of view, they're getting to see a more curated brand experience. From our brand partner point of view, we can do a better job of telling, of showing them what's going on in terms of how we are driving people through the funnel, but then how we get them converted through the site. 
So you're sort of operating a bit like um, across between a marketplace and Amazon. So if I was a medium-sized brand, I would wholesale to you or sell through you, and you're going to curate everything from top of the funnel through to delivery and returns for me better than I could do it myself. Is that the proposition? Yeah, the range, width and choice and the newness of that is really important. So we would do, uh, I would like to think, a better, a better job than, say, Amazon, of making it very easy to find the five or six products that you really want to have a look at and compare before you actually buy them. So what we've concentrated a lot on is speed of customer journey uh, in terms of being able to, in two or three clicks, get to a selection of product that you really want to see and that you're most likely to, to buy. So we're going to have a, not a re-platform, but a bit of a reskin, um, right. which we've nearly finished, actually, which will be ready in a couple of weeks' time, that is going to do a much better job for the customer of pre-selecting what they want to see. If you go on to other marketplaces, etc., it's a largely price-driven exercise. You may not find that product. And particularly with the grey market, you, you might be a bit worried about its authenticity as well. Mm. But the, the pricing for watches is pretty transparent in the, you know, the manufacturer will say or the brand will say. Mm. So what's the value add that you're offering? We talk about the funnel as if somehow it's a thing. Whereas you know we've been talking earlier on about yeah. you know realms of the customer the narrative uh, excite them you know how do you gild the lily when it comes to something I can just Google and say right that's two hundred and fifty pounds I'll buy it from anywhere what, what, what's the what's the je ne sais quoi that you're adding yeah ultimately you'll you'll find products on our site that you won't find elsewhere you'll find it ahead of other sites bef- before they get it mm-hmm. so that's important. But also, you won't you won't need to research elsewhere about that product. So, the treatment that we give the gold brand partners, and doing a better job of bringing, bringing out the expertise that our, our buying team have about the watches. There's nothing they don't know about watches. That's one of the, been the things that's really impressed me about the um, the watch shop team is providing that authority and. I guess comfort that you are buying you're buying the right thing from the right place. But in a way you're an exception to the thumbnail sketch we painted earlier of brands increasingly want to go direct, to own their story, to have more control, to work with the customer, not just around the moment of purchase. So as brands are going more and more direct to consumer, you're saying just just calm down. You know, we we can offer you something that you couldn't do yourself. It's very, it's very interesting, actually, and it's a, it's a live debate right now in the watch industry. Mm-hmm. So you see some brands going direct, building their own website capability and having their own stores, and you see other brands saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on what we do best, which is products and brand. We don't feel that we can do retail better than our current retail partners, and we're happy with the trade-off in terms of the... Mm. economic return of all of that. But the second part of my strategy, Ian, to, uh, to cover that point is that we are becoming increasingly a B2B business ourselves. So because I have my own technology and my own fulfillment, I can very easily uh, white label uh, brand experience. Watch and jewelry is probably the sweet spot in terms of the size, the handling of the product and the, and the AOV. Mm. But I do think it's part of perhaps a wider trend, particularly for the small and medium-sized brands that 
increasingly see, I think it's sort of some of the previous discussions have been the very high standards that are set in terms of do you do next day delivery? Are you able to have a very swift, beautiful mobile experience that costs money to invest in and keep current? And it means that you have to have a separate retailing technology team that that build it and drive it. So as a as a brand, do you do you want to invest in that as an ongoing cost doing business? Or are you better suited to working with a partner like ourselves, more of a managed service? You know we can do it. You can see what we're doing on our site. We can give you a branded but similar customer experience. Mm. You don't have to go to the bother of doing that. We're seeing an increased amount of traction for that. It's interesting to see Ocado, for example, it's a grocery market, global play that they're going for. But it's effectively what they're doing is turn their platforms into products which they rent managed service so they're the two core elements of what we're, we're doing albeit at a more modest level for a, a different market yeah. so there's a lot of innovation in the watch world with micro brand startups a lot of uk ones farah uh, we've seen bremont with the luxury end and now mm. you know uh, must be coming for a decade old jen was talking earlier on about the pipeline of innovative startup brands they can bring onto their platform. If we decide now that we love watches, we're going to set up our own vintage-inspired uh, watch brand, what would be the entry criteria to knock on your door and say, could you be my platform and help me out? Is, is that something that you're looking at? We do look at a small number each year. There are, there are lots of uh, would-bes and wannabes, as you'd expect. One is it needs to fit in with the rest of the brand portfolio. If it's a Me Too or a copycat, then it's unlikely to pass mm. muster, really. If it's genuinely an attempt to create something which is, doesn't exist in the market, particularly from the supply chain point of view, it's a credible, it's a credible mechanism, yeah. uh, it's a proper watch, then we'll talk, right. talk to you probably. Okay, so our listener can uh, email their ideas uh, to us and, and pitch you. So I'm conscious of the fact that we're hearing your voice out. So uh, you've been uh, very stoic on that. Uh, with the few breaths you have left, look at the year ahead. What's exciting you about your task list? So I'm looking forward to the uh, what we're calling the gold brand execution for our second the what? half of the year. Gold brands. So gold our, brands. our top partners are our oh, gold, right. are our gold brands. Are the turn of nine carat gold no, and okay. uh, bark finish so we, bracelets? <laughs> so we, um, our gold brand partners are really important to us. So the uh, the reskin of the site will do, I think, a much better job for them in terms of how we look and feel. So that'll be nice. I am equally excited about the B2B business. So we're just finishing off productizing that. And very interesting conversations this week around signing up our, our next set of partners to be our B2B partners. So oh, that's just tell us. Come on, no, no more of this. No, can't say that. <sighs> so that's that in terms of adding a new business arm, a new a new segment to the business, that is a very satisfying thing to do. Right. Well, look, uh, if we find out uh, the news before we uh, release the podcast, I will add it into the uh, podcast notes. But now everyone's managed to tease us with upcoming great things they can't tell us about. So I'm semi-frustrated, but uh, mostly uh, really excited by what you've shared with us. So our time is coming to an end. So thank you very much, Robin, Jen, Gail, Vera. So from the studio, dear listener, until next time, it's bye. Well done, Ian. <laughs>
That's right. Well done, you. I felt so sorry about your voice. It's like trying to get some pointy ears because this part might be. I think you might get sort of like you get athlete's foot. Maybe there's athlete's ear. Like the cauliflower rack. No fresh hair. Can you imagine that? Oh no. I shouldn't have said that. I'm not that. It's a sanitary wipes or something. No, that's just the grossest thing on the planet. Really interesting. Other people's bowling shoes. That was really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. I find that really Do you own your own bowling shoes? No, but you kind of feel you want to put, I don't know, a jiffy oh. bag or something on your feet. Oh, really? But you don't have to wear the bowling shoes anymore. I went bowling recently and they let me yeah. through with my own shoes on. Oh, really? Really? Okay. And were they, uh, you know, All-star special race? Jimmy Choo's or... No. Odds bowling loafers. Like opposite, no, like some Nikes. I'm sure they don't let you do that with. Oh yeah. wow! Oh wow! wow. Okay. That's the key. Wear something sensible, and they'll let you keep your own shoes. That's on. it. So I'll have to leave my kitten heels behind <laughs> uh, <laughs> just for the bowling. Yeah, Milano's are going to have to. Say. Exactly. Good. Well, look on that note of uh, great footwear. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs>